Hi, this is Ed Diaz, Executive Director of 7117 Ministries. Welcome to our new podcast, Israel, Past, Present, and Future. There will be a link in the show notes if you want to follow along while I teach. And these specific verses can get a little complicated, so you might want to listen to this episode twice. As many, as many of you know, I've been to Israel more than 40 times. I have a great love for God's land and his people. Hopefully, these podcasts will equip and prepare you to better understand the role of Israel in God's program for us and for the world. So let's begin episode number seven right away, Israel in the present. Israel in the present is a result of our last episode which we in which we studied the unpardonable sin along with the parables. And with those, uh, we saw that Jesus had been accused by the Jewish leadership of getting his power from Satan. As a result of that, uh, he treated Israel as though they had committed a, a sin which was unpardonable. And consequently, the nation is going to be rejected ultimately in 70 AD when the Roman Emperor Titus Vespasian besieges Jerusalem for three years and then takes prisoner and scatters abroad all of the Jewish people who lived therein. The result was that from 70 AD until 1948, we are in Israel's present condition. No other nation on earth has been scattered and regathered like Israel has. At the time of the Babylonian exile, I said that uh, nobody had been scattered for 70 years and regathered as a nation. But now after 1900 or so years, uh, Israel lives in their land. What do we make of that? And when you visit Israel, what are you going to see today in the present? And biblically, what does that mean to us? When you get to Israel, you're going to see different kinds of Jewish groups. Just as in the Protestant world, there are different denominations. There are several different denominations of, of Jews. The most obvious ones are dressed usually in black. They look like our Amish people here in the States. And they are extreme Orthodox. They're called the Hasidic or the Hasidim is plural Jews. That, that movement arose as a revival movement in Western Ukraine sometime during the late 1700s. And the Hasidics spread rapidly throughout Eastern Europe. In fact, by the time Hitler arose in 1939 and took the lives of six million Jews, many of them were the Eastern European Jews that were killed, and they were Hasidics. They were Hasidim. They are marked by several outward features. Leviticus 19.27 says, You shall not round off the hairline of your heads, nor trim the edges of your beard. And so they have, uh, they don't ever... Uh, trim the, the, their sideburns. They have curls that come down along either side of their head, and they don't cut their beards in a round way. They're shaped square, a little bit like the ZZ Top beard. You'll also notice that they wear suit jackets, and under the jackets, they will have prayer shawls. And the prayer shawls are, not, are noteworthy because at the bottom of the shawls are a series of knots. There are 613 knots on every Hasidic prayer shawl, and that represents the 613 commandments that God had given to Moses. Under their funny hats, and they wear hats with brims, and some of them wear hats with no brims. In fact, some of the hats are called putzes. They're often made of uh, great suede or great leather. Sometimes they're made of fur, even mink or ermine will do uh, to keep them warm. Again, being in Eastern Europe, that was a tradition they needed to, to keep their heads warm. Under those hats, they wear yarmulkes except for the females. The females didn't wear yarmulkes. In fact, the women Hasidic Jews actually shave their heads so as not to show pride in their hair. So when you see a couple together and the woman has wonderful long flowing hair, rest assured that she is indeed uh, wearing a wig. 
They also believe in the separation of the genders. They don't worship together. Uh, they're big on children. The average couple in Israel has seven to eight children. They're trying to overpopulate the world and also trying to outdo the Muslims, which are uh, very, uh, what's the word, fertile in that way. The interesting thing to me is they, uh, they're needed by both political parties. The major parties in Israel, of which there are about 30 altogether, uh, have to have the Hasidics on board to put together a coalition. And so although they're less than 10% of the Jewish population in the land of Israel, uh, they have way more power than they should because in order to rule effectively, either party in charge must have the, the approval of the Hasidic Jews. So they get a lot of uh, concessions from the political leaders. Also, one of the things that shocks me is they don't have jobs. We were out one time and visiting the rabbinical tunnel that you will visit on your trip to Israel along the Western Wall. We had a late tour, tour time and we didn't emerge until about one in the morning and all the Hasidic Jews were running around. Kids were playing, riding bicycles. Parents were having discussions and they were out to eat. And I asked my guide, I said, don't they have to be at work tomorrow? My guide, who was more of a liberal Jew, said, no, they don't work. And I said, how do they live? And the Hasidic Jews, he informed me, live off of the kindness of strangers. So that's the most obvious group. You won't see them in a majority and they generally won't engage you. But if you're on the airplane flying over uh, to Tel Aviv and if you have a Hasidic Jew with you in the middle of the flight, when the sun is coming up in the east, they will get out their phylacteries and their little boxes with the scriptures on and they will have prayers and you will see them doing the prayers even on the airplane. This is especially true if you're flying on El Al. That's the first group, the Hasidic or the extreme Orthodox. The second major group are the conservative Jews, and those are really divided in half. You have the observant Jews and the non-observant Jews. The observant Jews are the ones who do not work on the Sabbath. Uh, they will take the Shabbat elevator, as I talked in the, in the last episode. Uh, the non-observants won't worry about the feast days so much, and they won't worry about Sabbath so much. But they do believe as a group that there is a God. They believe in an afterlife. Most of the conservative Jews would believe in a, in a Messiah and a personal relationship with God being a possibility. So interesting people. Uh, we have a synagogue here in Lakeland uh, that is part Orthodox and part the third group, Reformed. Now, they do have a Reformed rabbi. His name is Rabbi David Goldstein. And the Reformed Jews are almost like the liberal Protestants. They're not always sure they even believe that God exists. When I was in university, one of my professors at the University of Pennsylvania was a Presbyterian pastor, and he didn't believe that God even existed. And so you will find many Reformed Jews that don't believe that God exists. If there is such thing as a Messiah, they believe that it's the nation that is the Messiah, the one who will deliver uh, the world. Our rabbi here in Lakeland does not believe in any kind of afterlife. It's uh, very depressing to go to one of his funerals, from what I am told. And so those are the three main groups of Jews that you will see today. And they all come under a biblical umbrella of Romans 11.25. It's going to be a key verse at the beginning and the end of our podcast. Romans 11.25, Paul writing to the church at Rome says, I do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, of this very mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Literally, until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. So apparently in God's program, Israel today has been set aside. It's been put on the shelf. They have been partially hardened. Their hearts are hard toward the gospel. And that will endure until the last number of Gentiles has come into the kingdom of God and come into the church. 
when that happens, there's an exciting future waiting for Israel, and we'll begin to delve into that over our last four or five sessions together. Galatians 3, verses 28 and 29 uh, makes this abundantly clear. Paul says to the churches of Galatia, we come on the basis of personal need and personal faith. He says that in Christ, there is no male or female. There is no slave or free man. There is no Jew or Gentile. And so because of the cross and because of the Jews rejected by Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, the Jews, along with every other Gentile on the planet, now has to come to a personal relationship with Christ based upon what he has done for them on the cross. Coming through Israel no longer is a requirement. No longer is it necessary. They must come individually on the basis of a personal need and a personal sacrifice that Jesus has made for them. Being a part of the nation does not play a part in their personal salvation. Unfortunately, over time, we have been invaded by a, by a theological doctrine called replacement theology. Replacement theology teaches that Israel has been completely replaced by the church. And that leads to some interesting conclusions in today's world. What do you do with Israel? Do they belong in the land? Do they not belong in the land? I've taken many pastors to Israel over the years, and those who come out of many of our denominations uh, believe that Israel has no right to the land. Uh, the, the Presbyterians, by and large, believe that uh, Israel has been replaced by the church, that we are spiritual Israel, as do the Episcopalians and some of the Methodists and some of the Baptists Almost all of the Roman Catholics would believe that Israel has been replaced by the church and certainly all of the Orthodox groups. Uh, I put a couple of links on your, on your handout. If you'd like to know more about replacement theology and the problem that it is uh, in today's world, I've given you uh, two, two sites. One is uh, the church father, Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr in the book, Israel, the Key to World Revival, uh, is the guy who is actually a Samaritan who in 150... AD came up with this idea that Israel was no longer important, that God was only going to work now through the Gentiles and the blessings of God were for Gentiles and the church only. And again, Justin Martyr had an ax to grind being a Samaritan by, by birth. Later in about 200 AD, Tertullian, another church father, wrote to the same effect, that the Jews had no part in the economy of God in the present. And again, many people thought that up until 1948, there was no reason to expect that the Jews would ever return to the land. And yet Charles Spurgeon says back in the 1800s that in order for the end times to play out, Israel must be back in the land. So I want to walk you through the three key chapters in the New Testament that deal with Israel and the church. And those are Romans 9 and 10 and 11. Now, interestingly enough, as we've seen before, that chapter 9 comes immediately after Romans chapter 8. And most uh, pastors, when they preach through Romans, do a great job getting through chapters 1 through 8. Chapter 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Chapter 5, God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then they get to Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the, the climactic benediction at the end of chapter 8, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then the average pastor skips from the end of Romans 8 all the way to the beginning of chapter 12, which says, uh, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And I'm here to tell you that missing out on Romans 9, 10, and 11 is a great gap in your theology, especially as you deal with how God sees Israel in the present. 
So I'm going to walk you through this. Again, it may be something you'd want to listen to a second time. I've included all the verses, but I won't have time in the podcast to teach through all of them. So the verses that I'm not going to cover in depth, I've put in blue in, uh, in the text of the handout. You can see that for yourself. Let's start in Romans 9 and verse 1. The apostle says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not living my conscience testifies. I'm, I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Paul says, for I wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh who are Israelites to whom belong the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service of the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever, amen. You see, Paul says basically, I'd be willing to go to hell if it meant my Jewish kinsmen could go to heaven. He said, I'd be willing to be separated from Christ for the sake of, of my brethren. But he, but he understands that there's a problem with Israel in the present. Everything is not as it should be and will be. Verse 6, Paul says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. What Paul is going to say now in his next verses is that there's a distinct relationship uh, with the Jewish people that transcends the physical. And so he does that, skip down to verse 23, God did this to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from the, among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. You see, God from the very beginning wanted to have a forever family. It didn't matter to him if you were a Jew or a Gentile. The purpose of Israel in the Old Testament through our first six lessons was to obey his commands to have God's blessing on the nations so that other nations could see what it was like to walk with the God of Israel. They were to be priests. They were to be bridge builders. They were to be set apart to that task. And when Christ came in Matthew 12, the Jewish leadership and then the multitude with them decided he was getting his power from Satan. That was unpardonable. And for an entire uh, generation, Jesus says, you're going to be set aside and put on the shelf. And from that day in, 19, in 70 AD, until the second coming of Christ, the Jews are going to be uh, in, that, in that same circumstance as the Gentiles. When we come into this world, we are enemies with God. We need to come to God on the basis of personal need and on our personal faith in Christ. And Paul reiterates that in, in Romans 9.25. As he said also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who is not beloved, beloved. And it shall be in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. You see, we're living in the time when Israel is not the key player in the program of God. Individual Jews who can become a part of the remnant will be saved. And going into the very end times, we'll see in the future of Israel that as things play out in the latter days, only one-third of the Jewish people will be, will be delivered. The other two-thirds will reject the offer that God has for them because of Christ. And Zechariah 13, verses 7, 8, and 9 uh, points that out. During these end days, uh, we're going to see that God says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man my associate, declares the Lord. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. 
It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but a third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part. This is one third of the Jewish people in the end times will be brought through the fire. They will be refined as silver is refined and tested as gold is tested. And they will call on my name and I will answer them. And I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. So there is a glorious future for those Jews who make it through to the end time and realize that God is their deliverer and Christ is their, is their Messiah and their Savior. And they will have a great and glorious future. But in the meantime, there's a drama to be played out. In the meantime, back to Romans chapter 10. Paul in verse 1 says, Brethren, he's talking to the church, My heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a real zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. See, the Jews did not believe in Christ because they didn't understand or refused to understand that uh, they would be uh, not made righteous by all their obedience to, to the laws of, of the Mosaic Covenant. And so how do you get saved? Verse 9 of Romans 10, Paul says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a matter of salvation by faith based upon what Christ has done for you, whether you are a Jew or whether you are a Gentile. So Paul's question logically then in verse 14 is how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? You see, Paul went out on the missionary journeys as a preacher and he went first to the Jews and then to the Greeks. Verse 15, how will they preach unless they are sent just as it is written? I love this verse. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. You see, the, the illustration here is one of a military battle. Back at the city where the king would live, he would send his general out to war, and he would wait to see how the, how the battle went. But he couldn't stand to wait until the general returned home. He would rather have a messenger sent from the front. And the front would come home through the mountains and hills, and his feet would be a disgusting mess by the time he reached the palace. But the scripture says he will have beautiful feet if he brings good news. And that's exactly what Paul's feet are and what our feet ought to be about. We're the ones bringing the good news to the world, both the Gentile friends that we have and the Jewish friends that they have. And so Paul says in verse 18 of Romans 10, but I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Well, yes, indeed they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the earth, world. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? Absolutely. Paul says they did. First, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding, I will anger you. Again, even Moses knows that those who are not God's people were going to be called God's people. Verse 20, Isaiah is very bold and says, I was, found, I was found by those who did not seek me, and I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. Those Gentiles who found Christ, who came to Christ, who asked for Christ, 
they got to they got to know God and be get we with God, and that's our joy as believers in Christ. But as for Israel, verse twenty one, he says, "All the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people." I say then, verse eleven, God has not rejected His people, has He? Paul says, "May it never be." Paul says, "God hasn't rejected Israel." In fact, may it never be is paraphrased this way. No, no, don't be stupid. Paul says, for I'm a Jew. I'm an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknow, of which Paul was one. Skip down to verse 15. It says, for their, their rejection is the reconciliation of the world. What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? See, Paul says in verse 16, if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, Gentiles, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree who supports the root, but the root supports, uh, verse 18, of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. The point is, because the Jews have rejected their Messiah, God has put them on the shelf. But in God's sovereignty and in God's love and in God's reconciliation, those of us who are Gentiles who understand that the promises of God are true and that Jesus comes from the Jewish line of the Messiah and he's the one who forgives our sins. And we're the wild olive branches being grafted into the, to the rich root. And so we're not to be arrogant, verse 18, toward the branches which are the, the Jewish branches, but if you are arrogant, remember, it is not you who supports the root. The root of Israel supports us. You will say then branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Well, quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. Because in verse 21, if God did not spare the natural branches, meaning the Jews, he will not spare you either. Verse 22, behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell. Severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For, and read this, God is able to graft them in again. God is able and willing to graft Israel back into the true root again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature, verse 24, a wild olive tree, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are Will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? God says, hey, I've set the Jews aside, but I'm grafting into their place, you wild olive Gentiles. And don't get proud about that because God's going to graft them back in and they will have great fruit and great production that you don't even know about yet. For verse 25 is the verse we started with. I, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, Here's our verse, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. All Israel that believes that one-third of the Jews left in the latter days will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them. When I take away their sins, there's a future for Israel. God is coming for them to take away their sins who believe in Jesus as their Messiah. From the standpoint of the gospel, for now, they're enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, <laughs> they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. And I love this verse, verse 29, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were 
once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. So these also now have been disobedient. So these also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may not may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. And then Paul realizes the greatness of God and, and taking the Jews, putting them aside, bringing the Gentiles into the church so that we together, Jews and Gentiles alike, there is no Jew or Greek, there is no male or female, there is no slave or free man. All of us can be one in Christ. Paul breaks into praise. Oh, verse 33, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has given, uh, who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. God's gifts and God's call are irrevocable. Praise God. Thank you.